1: As we begin another week on Political Rewind, all eyes are once again uh, focused on Brunswick, Georgia. Not just here in Georgia, but across the country. Uh, Today, of course, is the day that the federal hate crimes trial for the three men who've been convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery uh, stand trial on those charges. The jury selection begins today. Uh, Most observers believe that while there is a mountain of evidence... That uh, the th- two of the three, at least, uh, Travis and Greg McMichael, uh, had made many, many racist uh, comments. Most observers, uh, uh, legal observers, think that getting a conviction on these charges could be very difficult. And in the days ahead, uh, we'll be paying attention to uh, that trial as it unfolds. Jury selection could go on for some time. We'll watch how that unfolds. Um, but uh, I just wanted to mention it at the start of the show today. Uh, Because clearly it is another important day for the people of Brunswick and for all of those who have watched that murder trial so uh, carefully. Um, Let's get right to our panel today. We've got with us Jim Galloway, who, of course, is the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Jim, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Had a wonderful weekend. We took a drive up to North Georgia on Sunday. And where I saw my first Brian Kemp and David Perdue campaign signs, and it kind of struck me that uh, that 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 that's going to be that that territory is going to be essential to both in the in the upcoming primary. Oh yeah, that's really
1: interesting. Um, uh, and of course, we'll be paying a lot of attention to how that unfolds in the weeks ahead uh, too. Karen Owen is with us, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. How are you, Karen? Karen, you said you were at a conference in New Orleans over the weekend, and it focused on one of your specialties, talking about women in politics. Karen?
0: Yes, I had a great time. It was um, hosted by the Women Public Leadership Network, and it was focused on really encouraging more women to get involved in politics. So we heard from state representatives and some congressional women about their journey into politics.
1: Well, thank you for uh, joining us after a busy weekend in New Orleans. Uh, Michael Thurman is back with us today. He, of course, is the CEO of DeKalb County, but has played many other roles in elective politics, going all the way back to his service as a young freshman representative in the Georgia House of Representatives from Athens. What year was that that you first went into the legislature, Mike? January 1987. And uh, Bill, Uh, you
3: bring something to mind. I want to thank Professor Owens for honoring me to serve as the
1: Thomas B. Murphy Lecturer uh, at a recent event at West Georgia. So thank you, Professor. Oh, you traveled out there. You know, Jim Galloway and I, Karen invited Jim Galloway and I out there uh, about a month or so, maybe a little more than that uh, or so ago. And it was just great to get to see uh, her territory on that campus. I'm glad you got out there too, Mike. Sam Olens oh, yeah. is uh, back with us. Um, you know that I think all of you who listen to the show know that we love pairing Sam Olins and Michael Thurman. Both of them have such deep, deep knowledge and long careers in Georgia elective politics. Sam Olins, of course, former attorney general of the state, um, former before that, uh, very well respected chairman of the Cobb County Commission. Now a partner with Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Sam.
4: Yeah, but I haven't been invited to West Georgia, so I'm just a has-been, you know. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's good to be you on. But no, 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 no. You blew it. You blew it. And, and it's a pleasure to once again be on the show with my older brother, the CEO of DeKalb County.
1: <laughs> let's get let's get right to it. Uh, I, I want to talk about um, uh, spend some time. Um, We're going to take kind of a 50,000 foot level at a couple of major stories that certainly have an impact on Georgia, but are also big national stories uh, right now. And I want to start um, with a story inspired by an article The New York Times published this weekend. They looked at how redistricting was unfolding in states across the country. And I'm going to read a little bit from their article to set up our conversation. And there are going to be numbers here, and I know numbers are hard on the radio, but I'll do my best to make them clear. With two-thirds of the new boundaries set, map makers are on pace to draw fewer than 40 seats out of 435 that are considered competitive based on the 2020 presidential election results. Ten years ago, there were 73 seats that were considered competitive. And then the Times goes on and says in the 29 states where maps have been completed and not thrown out by the courts, and that includes Georgia, there are just 22 districts that either Biden or Trump won by 5 percent or less. So it tells us, Jim Galloway, that increasingly uh, what used to be competition between a Democrat and Republican to win a seat in Congress has shrunk perhaps to a new low, certainly a low uh, of more than three decades standing. Jim?
2: Right, right. The middle ground is literally disappearing out from under us. Uh, And what what I find interesting is that uh, we were looking, I think, was it two years ago that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, declared that it it didn't want to interfere with partisan gerrymandering? Uh, in congressional districts, where you've begun to see pushback now, in, in both in North Carolina and Ohio, possibly in New York, are state constitutions that prohibit uh, partisan gerrymandering. Uh, and and that's, that has started to kick in, so it may modify this a little bit. Uh, 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 Ohio's map was drawn by Republicans, it's been turned away. Uh, same thing with North Carolina. In New York, it's the Democratic map. Uh, Republicans are 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 promising to oppose uh, to oppose that. Uh, each side is 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 uh, is has, has drawn it to its own favor.
1: Yeah, Sam Ollens. When in fact the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, ruled in 2019 that it did not want to it get involved in partisan matters, partisan gerrymandering. They did, though, in their ruling, the majority ruling, say certainly state supreme courts. Uh, can weigh in on issues of partisan gerrymandering, which has opened the door for a state like North Carolina's uh, Supreme Court to say, you've drawn a map, North Carolina legislators, Republican legislators, that's going to give at least 10 seats uh, to Republicans, 10 of 14, despite the fact that North Carolina is close to a 50-50 toss-up state between Democrats and Republicans. Sam? Sam?
4: Yeah, I think the the, the more interesting point is that um, it provides for more primary opposition. Because when there isn't really a race in November, the extremes get involved in the earlier primary. So you're seeing both in the Republican and Democratic uh, primaries, that you can no longer be a centrist, you, you have to, mm-hmm. you have to be one of the extremes um, and your seat is never safe as a result of it. So um, on the one hand, there's less, much less confrontation in November, which I think is a, a, a big loss for democracy. But on the other hand, the crazies are involved in the primary.
1: And we're seeing that, Mike, right now, certainly in Georgia um, races, maybe not on the congressional uh, level so much, because here in Georgia, we really don't have how many, what what do we make of how many competitive districts we really have in Georgia based on these new maps?
3: Well, relatively few. But let me go back to something now. Because, and I would add Alabama, too, because I think uh, the Alabama State Supreme Court rejected Uh, legislative redistricting plan that diluted uh, black voting influence strength in that county. But I think the outgrowth of this will be heightened interest in state Supreme Court races uh, going forward. You're going Mm. to see, the uh, I don't want to use the word weaponized, but it would definitely politicize these races uh, at the state level in a much greater way because the Supreme Court is now deferring the state uh, uh, Supreme Courts to make these type of decisions, and consequently, that will be more focused on the men and women who are trying to seek these positions, and much, much more investment in terms of political resources and capital. But this is an ongoing process, something Jim Galloway wrote about 30 years ago. Uh, you mentioned uh, in 1990, is nothing like going through a reapportionment session when you're a member of the General Assembly. Uh, That's the time Uh, actually grown men and women cry.
1: Uh, actually, uh, uh, Michael, you sent a note out to us with a, a link to a Galloway column that he wrote in August of 2011, and the lead was, Republicans in the state capitol are about to put the finishing touches on a series of maps that are likely to make politics in Georgia more partisan, more racially polarized, and more predictable than at any time since the 1960s. Uh, so, uh, Galloway, you spotted a trend way back then. Before I come back to you, though, Jim, uh, Karen, I, I I'd love for you to pick up on this um theme that sam olin started us on which is because there is little competition between democrats and republicans in so many districts in georgia and around the country it, he points out what it's done is increase the partisan polarization in primary races and clearly uh that's unfolding um in in states like georgia and everywhere else where the trump Republicans are challenging those who are less Trumpy or whatever, Karen?
0: Absolutely, you're right. I mean, the shift now is really to the primaries and not a conversation about the general election. I think it also goes back to the point Sam made about are competitive elections really what we want or what we need for a, a good, healthy democracy? And there is, I guess, that ongoing question is competitive elections. The institutions may be better, but do these competitive elections actually serve voters well? Like, what do voters care about? Are voters more concerned about selecting someone who matches their partisanship and ideology? So if we look at it, competitive elections, do they really increase voters' satisfaction out there? There is a book by a political scientist who addresses this, and he argues that You know, competitive elections are actually bad for Americans because we end up having losing voters in these really tight elections. So we have Republicans who are really disappointed when a Democrat wins in their district and vice versa. And so if and if they're less satisfied with the representation they get, then he argues and others have talked about this. Why don't we just pack districts full of partisan, like minded people? Because then everybody's a winning voter. Right. They're happier. But again, is that really what we want in democracy, where we want to have a debate about issues where perhaps, as Jim mentioned and others have, that kind of centrist middle position that should hopefully get us better um, policy, but however, now we are, back to what you originally asked me about, Bill, is now it's a fight in the partisan primaries, and how extreme are we going, and then can you actually, by the general election, come back and talk about centrist ideas or middle-of-the-road policies?
2: Yeah, uh, hey, um, yeah. If if I could, if a follow up here, uh, 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 Professor Owens is is uh, does pol- how, what impact does polarization have on 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 the the, the election of of female candidates? Gender uh, does it uh, does it? Uh, I'm, I'm obviously I'm seeing in, on the Democratic side, we're seeing a lot more uh, participation by women. Does but but does polarization hinder? uh republican women from from uh from getting on the ballot
0: so i don't know that it's really polarization that hinders republican women it's just definitely much more of the partisan um, gatekeeping recruitment and the idea of do conservative women really want to get involved in politics i think what it will do is you see much more women competing against women so if there is a district, You'll have Democratic women buying, and you'll also see Republican women jump in to run, too, because they think that that district is much more willing to elect a woman so they will compete.
1: Um, s- s- uh, Michael Thurman, uh, l- let me uh, uh, read you another couple of sentences from the New York Times article and, and get your uh, response to it. Lack of competition in general elections can widen the ideological gulf between the parties, leading to hardened stalemates on legislation and voters' alienation from the political process, which is the opposite of uh, Karen's uh, uh, referring to one study by a political scientist who said it's it's if you if you don't win the election with your guy, you're going to get alienated. It's not yet clear which party will ultimately benefit more from this year's bumper crop of safe seats, or whether President Biden's sagging approval ratings might endanger Democrats whose districts haven't been competitive, but it's certainly true that Republicans control the map making for more than twice as many uh, districts as Democrats. Michael?
3: We'll reapportion that the thing that seems to always manifest is the law of unintended consequence. You already mentioned no one was really expecting these state Supreme Courts to weigh in on these redistricting schemes and to basically balance the scale with extreme uh, gerrymandering. Um, You know, and then again, you think about the founding fathers. um, They were very, many of them anyway, were very suspicious of government, and they created a system where it was very difficult to make grand, uh, extreme changes in the direction of the political direction of the country. So what we're really seeing may be what was actually intended. That it will take major, major, major uh, shifts in order to radically redirect or, or reappropriate resources by our federal government. We're living through it right now, and for Madison and those who schemed it, this may be exactly what they intended.
1: Um, so, Sam, to translate what the New York Times said in that in that particular paragraph, it. it what this means is, is, we we all we all see this play out every day, but we may not think about it in terms of gerrymandering. When a bill is introduced on Capitol Hill, uh, say the Build Back Better Act, um, Republicans from the Georgia congressional delegation have no reason to fear that rejecting that measure will cost them votes among their constituents, and Democrats in their districts. Have to look to vote for it because they were elected by a democratic base, which which is what the Times is saying leads to this hardening of the lines and the inability to get anything accomplished. Yes, Sam.
4: So I think there's there's one um, there's one um, issue that we haven't covered. Uh, I think when you talk to most Americans, they're Actually, closer to the center. I think they're actually viewing themselves more as independents now than 10 years ago. Um, So, even if less districts should be in play, I think more will be in play because of the um, frustration that so many Americans feel that their government isn't working for them and I think then that gets to personality I think it then gets to competence and someone who hasn't voted for a Democrat in a long time may vote for a Democrat now if they think that one's more sane and vice versa so I I think you know so you know for instance so even if you change the lines of the second district I think there's still a lot of people that are going to support the incumbent Congressman, uh, because he likes to get stuff done similarly to David Scott up in Metro Atlanta. So I, I think sometimes we may be looking at these numbers too closely, uh, because at the end of the day, I think many of us are just totally disgusted.
1: Jim, so let's talk about Georgia in this uh, context. Um, Sam points to the 2nd District, where Sanford Bishop has held that seat for decades now. The map that was approved uh, by the Georgia legislature, signed by the governor, there are challenges to it, Uh, changes the lines so that it could be a more competitive district. The Republicans have an opportunity uh, down there that they haven't had in the past. The 6th District, Lucy McBath's, uh, district has been re- redrawn uh, so that it, in fact, it, it could be so favorable to Republicans, she's no longer willing to run in that district. She's going to compete in a primary against Carolyn Bordeaux in the seventh district. So talk about, translate some of what we're talking about at a national level to what you're seeing in the state, Jim.
2: Right. Well, uh, first of all, just for for, for our listeners, uh, geographically, the second district is 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 in southwest Georgia. Uh, Sanford Bishop generally claims Albany as as a, as a home. I think uh, in that district the, the 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 black voting age population was was reduced significantly. I think it's still Michael can correct me if I'm wrong, but I still I think it's still uh, it still has a, a high percentage of of uh, of of uh, African American v- voters, uh, but it but you are seeing some activity uh, 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 on on the Republican side that you haven't seen before. Uh, a lot of that may be positioning. Uh, Bishop has held that seat since ninety four, I think uh he, uh neither neither he and and nor nor uh david scott can run for run forever and sometimes you'll see you'll see uh, uh opponents just jump up just so they can get their their name id uh uh up up there for the next race but yeah but the the republican the republicans uh, what we have to remember is is redistricting is a national effort it's been a nationalized effort the, the, these maps aren't always coming out of out of atlanta or the state capitol a lot of these maps are coming out of washington d c with the object of, of, of uh, uh, preserving democratic power in the u s house or, uh, or, or uh, asserting uh, republican control again and, and clearly uh that's when the that was the case with the uh with uh with the, with the sixth district which is you know this is Newt Gingrich's old district this is johnny isaacson's old district and so there was uh so so they uh they had a choice they they had uh republicans could take out one of those districts but they couldn't take out uh both the sixth and the seventh so they moved the sixth up to, into into forsyth county uh, hopefully preserving its its republican base uh, for you know, for for at least two or th- two or three more cycles, and uh, and of course now now you've got what what we've got uh, uh, we've we've got two Democratic Congresswoman women uh, fighting against each other. Uh, this isn't too, we've seen this we've seen this movie before. The last time though, it was uh, John Linder and Bob Barr remember they uh, uh uh bob Barr's district was was made heavily heavily democratic so he jumped into 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 the race against john linder and got his hat handed to him
1: yeah yeah boy galloway you really go back a long way karen uh, <laughs> uh let's pick up on something G- uh, galloway asked you a little while ago how to How does gerrymandering affect women candidates? Well, the the 7th District race is an interesting example of two women, as Jim just said, Lucy McBeth moving over from the 6th to compete against Carolyn uh, Bordeaux in uh, the 7th. And if you're particularly interested in uh, women and in in elective office, uh, you can't be thrilled that two women are competing against each other for that seat now.
0: Right, because it actually affects the representation the state has for women, we have seen that in congressional redistricting and in statewide redistricting for the the legislature that women do usually have um, a less opportunity to have their district saved or made more safe mm-hmm. for them. Um, I, it is interesting. I think a, a few months ago I made a comment for the Republicans who were drawing the maps here in Georgia, you know, to pay attention. They had a, a newly elected female in South Georgia. Her district was actually preserved. Um, they, you know, uh, Redrew the lines and it had affected another member down there. So I think the parties, you know, if we think about redistricting, we are talking about it in terms of competitiveness and the fact of the partisan gerrymandering facts. When you go back to the very beginning, like the the map makers have to look first and foremost at equal population. These districts have to have equal population. So when we think about the second district, they had to actually really look because that district was losing voters coming up into metro Atlanta. And so that's where we see the shift. And with, you know, women, that affects that they're in urban areas, their districts are going to change. There's more population, so they may be overpopulated and have to lose some voters and that can affect them. Whereas in another rural part of the state, if women are elected, they have fewer, so they're going and grabbing other counties. So there's a lot of factors at play here. Um, That we don't always think about because we jump straight to the partisan conversation because Mm redistricting is political, right? Every party wants to maintain their power, (laughs) Um, but they have to go through some of those legal standards first before even in many ways, I guess, the conversation rolls on partisanship.
1: Uh, before we get to a break, since we've invoked uh, Georgia history a few times, um, let's do it again. Uh, Michael Thurman, you're the one who mentioned that redistricting somehow follows, sometimes follows the law of unintended consequences. A classic example of that was when Speaker Tom Murphy, whose archives um, uh, we know that Karen Owen oversees out of the University of West Georgia, Tom Murphy was determined to get rid of Newt Gingrich. He was a thorn in the side as his power grew in Republican politics. And uh, Murphy pushed the redrawing of a map that he was going to absolutely once and for all rid the state of Newt Gingrich. It didn't turn out that way, did it, Michael?
3: (laughs) Yeah, how did that work out for us? But uh, <laughs> but no, but let me say this. The history is so important. And I guess Galloway and I, you too, we're old guys, so we've been around. And what the Republicans are doing with redistricting, it's really not going to work in the end. They're going to fail. And the reason I know it's going to fail is I watched my Democratic colleagues go through the same thing in the 90s, uh, trying to preserve power. And it's just not going to work. The thing that was most, Impactful to me was to see the chair of the Gwinnett delegation uh, represented the pack, and to see the diversity of Gwinnett. So you can try to Jimmy rig or, or gerrymander the district, or you can expand your base by expanding your agenda and your philosophy, so that you will get a most diverse electorate supporting you. They've chosen to play the game. Ultimately, it may work for one election cycle or two, but ultimately. Uh the, the die is already cast and we're going to see a much more diverse population of elected officials uh, representing people at the state, local, and federal level.
1: Sam Ollins, before we get to the break, I I you certainly watched uh when the Roy Barnes administration uh drew those crazy democratic maps, multi-district maps and uh multi member maps, that sort of thing. And uh And as Mike points out, in the long run, uh, Democrats uh, lost control of uh, the House and the Senate and the governor's mansion.
4: You know, I I think the problem at the moment, Bill, is that neither party is seeking to broaden their tent. They're both going further Mm. to the extreme. So I think historically Mike was right. But at the moment, I don't see any attempt to broaden the tent in either party.
1: And what conclusion does that lead you to, Sam?
4: Disenfranchisement. Frustration. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I, I I think that's so correct. And I think it's one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time talking about this today because I think most of us Are completely frustrated, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that nothing is getting accomplished, certainly at the uh, level of Congress and and in federal politics. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. We'll come back. We'll have a lot more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Karen Owen, Sam Owens, um, Jim Galloway, Michael Thurman join me today. If you don't mind me starting off the segment on a lighter note for just a moment. Today's the 58th anniversary of the day that the Beatles landed in New York City for the first time, went on the Ed Sullivan Show, and uh, started Beatlemania in its full fledged craziness, uh, went on for years. Um, I asked the panel how old they were. Uh, when that happened. I was the oldest. I was 17 when the Beatles got here. Sam Owens, you were 6 or 7. Galloway, I think you were 9. Thurman, you were 11. Karen Owen has no idea what we're even talking about. (laughs) (laughs) She is definitely the baby of the group. But uh, I just thought it would be fun to point out that the Beatles came here 58 years ago. By the way, they didn't play in Atlanta. They played at Atlanta Stadium in uh, 1965, and that remains one of the cultural touchstones Uh, For many people of my generation in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, All right, let's get back to serious business. Jim, uh, for weeks and weeks, since well before the session began, Speaker Pro Tem, Republican Legislator, uh, House Member Jan Jones, talked about the fact that she was going to be working to promote legislation that would ban uh, so called obscene materials from Georgia's schools. Um, I think that includes books but it also includes um, material on the web. Her bill just dropped, and uh, that bill uh, uh, requires that the, the uh, State Department of Education uh, put in place vendors who can uh, put blocking mechanisms on the uh, computers in schools around the state to prevent these obscene materials from getting through. Right, Jim?
2: Yeah, and here, here, here's the thing. That's already be happening. That's I mean, if you if you go to any teacher, we we uh, my family were talking about this yesterday. Uh, uh, the Cobb County school system has a has an internet uh, uh, filter that uh, that is uh, on one level for uh, specifically for YouTube for students, and another level for teachers. YouTube has become kind of a a, a documentary medium for for a lot of these classrooms, but. But, but let's, let, let's think about this. Think about this. An internet filter only works if you're using a school computer. Now, what does every student in Georgia have in his or her backp- backpack? It's a cell phone. And most of these students have 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 unlimited data. They are not going to log on to the the, the school system's wireless system. They are going to watch whatever they want, see, read what, it, uh, read whatever they want to read on those cell phones. So it's it's it's. It, 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 I know I know what's happening here. You uh, Republicans are, are kind of uh, taking a, some advice from Glenn Youngkin over in Virginia, who 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 kind of uh, uh ran on the uh, the the gap the the this this the confidence gap that parents have in the school system but it's 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 to me this is legislation is window dressing but it doesn't really have any impact
1: karen it's hb 1217 and um i i there were some things about the measure and i'd love to. i'm not a lawyer Uh, And I know you're a professor, but we'll get to Sam and Michael, who can talk about this from a legal point of view in a minute. But I want to hear a teacher's perspective on this. If you look at this bill and the definitions of the things that would be filtered out, there's some language in here that I'm not sure I understand. It talks about material that is, quote, patently offensive to prevailing standards in the adult community as a whole – with respect to what is suitable material for minors, that's one of the things it talks about, is when taken as a whole lacking in serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value for minors. So while it does speak to pornography uh, in some of the language in the bill, when it starts talking about lacking in serious literary, artistic, or scientific value, whether it's offensive to prevailing standards, It it strikes me that that takes this bill in an entirely new direction. Karen? Yes,
0: and I think it makes it unclear for teachers. They don't understand what they would be allowed to show or discuss or talk about, and thus it may actually prevent them from having open conversations or assigning something to read because they don't know if it does fall into that category. And I think, you know, in all of this, there's probably a significant difference from what the teachers in pre K through, um, you know, the elementary school will be facing versus what middle school teachers versus high school teachers, because teachers know how to teach what is age appropriate for the students in their classes. But I think this, again, it just doesn't, it will make teachers nervous, you know, even from an academic standpoint where. At the university level, I have a lot of academic freedom to build in a lot of different assignments to push critical thinking. It even calls me into question, will the legislature, will someone want to know more about what I'm teaching and why I'm teaching? And that's but they're not in my class for those 12 or 15 weeks to see the entirety of the context. So one assignment may be offered or one reading, but it goes into
4: a whole group of what we're discussing sam so let's face it there's there's four bills called parents bill of rights there's this bill the technology act there's four bills that uh relate to devices and controversial concepts and they all have one thing in common Um promoting their voters to the polls in November. Practically all of these bills have substantial constitutional affirmance. Um The language that you referenced, Bill, uh, i have a hard time thinking that many federal judges would do anything other than throw those lines out. Is vague and ambiguous. So they are they are there to encourage their voters to the polls and frankly, offer less with regard to substance.
1: Um, Mike, nobody argues that parents should have the right to know what children in certainly at least K through 12 are being taught that you do have a right to, you, you can look at your kid's backpack, say, I'd like to see what books you're reading in your social studies uh, class in history. Uh, how are you being taught math? So I don't think anybody argues that parents have a right to have some involvement. Um, but this takes it to a whole new level. And as Sam says, seems to be part of a culture war more than any serious effort to give parents more involvement with their children's schools, which they already have.
3: Well, Sam is absolutely right. It's really not so much a culture war. It's a political tactic. Uh, It's about electioneering. more And so I find it difficult to take it seriously, to be honest with you, Bill, uh, because it is just that. It's a political tactic that's focused on November 2022. And I agree with everything Sam said. The thing that Jim Galloway mentioned, having served as a superintendent, uh, school districts already uh, deployed these filters uh, throughout the system in the various grade levels, so it's not new. What is new is just like, uh, remember gay marriage? Remember then that was the the the, the 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 issue that was designed to focus or at least encourage conservative voters to go to the poll. Well, it's not it. This year is critical race theory and parental uh, um Uh, control. Listen, the one thing I supported was parental engagement. The thing that we used to help improve academic performance in the DeKalb County School, but we reached out and we engaged parents to support and assist teachers and students in helping them achieve at a higher level. I'm all for parental engagement. Politicizing it for just to encourage political gain is a bridge too far for me.
1: You know, Jim, it strikes me that um, it, 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 Sam has already said he thinks some of the language in this particular bill is g- going to be end up thrown out by the federal courts. Um, but it strikes me that in some ways uh, it, 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 we we remember how many times Speaker Ralston has backed away from really extreme measures uh, by offering a, a safer harbor on an, any number of of bills. Um if if schools are already providing Internet filters uh, to deal with a lot of the obscene material, if some of this language, which appears th- will be uh, ruled unconstitutional, is cleaned up out of the bill, this is kind of a better place to be than some of the more extreme bills on how parents get involved with their schools.
2: Yeah, I, I, I would hate to, to, to tell you how many times I've watched a bill pass uh, through the legislature on the knowledge that uh, on, on on and and this worked into the formula into the equation that a judge would ultimately throw it out, uh, and 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 thus uh, no foul, no harm, uh, but it is it is it is gaining a football in a foothold in, in political speech. Uh, I, I don't I don't know if you've uh, uh, read it, but uh, Brian Kemp, uh, the governor governor had a, a, a an op-ed piece in the AJC uh, uh mm-hmm. in the in the last few days and there was one line in in there that says parents ought to have the right to decide what's taught in their kids classrooms now tell me how that's going to work in a classroom of 30 to 40 kids uh i, I just don't understand I, I don't understand that and and i wonder you know, uh, back in back in 2002, uh, uh, Roy Barnes, of course, he, he 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 caught a lot of flack from rural Georgia because he brought down the state flag and, and its com- Confederate uh, battle emblem. But he also got got in touch with teachers, uh, w- w- and they are uh, fairly fairly they remain a fairly powerful voting block. And I w- I wonder how this is going to impact uh, Republicans come come November. I think that's a really interesting point, Karen.
1: Um, We know that uh, Governor Kemp, on one hand, has given teachers the promised raises that that he told them he would, and certainly they're going to be grateful for that. But what's your take um, on how these bills, uh, should any of them or all of them pass, the kind of impact it has on people trying to teach in a classroom?
0: So you're right. There's, I guess, two different things going here, right? He has, Governor Kemp has one message that he's supporting teachers. He's making sure that they are paid adequately. They're going to get their bonuses and then the second piece is, But we do want parents involved to know exactly what you're doing. So I think teachers are really going to say, how are you messaging to what you want to know we're doing? And can you trust that we are specialists in curricula and that we can provide what is best for your children? You know, I was just thinking about materials and my oldest is in middle school and he read The Hiding Place, which is centered in the Holocaust time, but he read it in fifth grade as a young reading edition. So there were passages that were left out because it was too much for him. He's now reading it again in seventh grade and they're reading the full version. So I think it's because the teachers knew what their students could handle. And they're not bypassing an important dialogue and discussion of history through literature, but they know what students need. And I think both parties, even though they're using this for political gain or political turnout, they're going to have to be careful with how they talk to teachers. They are a huge voting block and they have organized membership and groups that are going to give them the ammunition or the information they need to make decisions when they go to vote.
1: Okay, Karen Owen gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. Let's get our final break of the show in. We'll be back with more in a moment. Um, Michael Thurman, Sam Owens in the previous segment did a good job laying out uh, the, the various bills that have been introduced this session to, in some ways, uh, oversee, give legislative or uh, uh, political oversight to what's taught in uh, schools in Georgia. You're the historian uh, in this group. And, and so I want to ask you to comment for a minute here, start the commenting on a an op-ed piece, an essay that appeared in The Washington Post last week that I, surprised me in terms of some of the things I learned from it. It was written by a professor at NYU, professor of history and social studies education. His name is Robert Cohen. And although he wasn't talking just about Georgia, he does talk about Georgia in the context of all of these efforts by Republicans to oversee education. These moves, he says, are a throwback to the right wing's idea of an educational golden age, the period before the civil rights movement transformed American education. That period reminds us that such political actions can have a chilling effect on teachers' willingness to teach about race and racism, and a lack of education on these topics can have devastating consequences, something that was on display at the University of Georgia in 1961, he says. And he talks about the fact that when Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes were the first two black students admitted to the university, integrating university, a professor in a class asked his white students to respond to what it meant to have these two black uh, young people now in school and the responses were devastating to read. Uh, Blacks don't have the intellectual prowess to be part of this. Uh, Blacks are an inferior race. Um, Michael, and and his point is that this comes from an era before white students in those days at UGA had any chance at all to understand race and racism.
3: Oh, extremely eye-opening, but in fact, I lived it. as you know, Brown versus Board of Education was 54, but segregated school system continued to exist in Georgia up until the fall of 1970, which was my senior year at Clark Central High School. So I live that moment in time when black and white students for the first time uh, are being educated or attending school and sitting in classrooms together. But I want to go back to 54. Uh, It was a strategic decision by Thurgood Marshall and the other lawyers in the Legal Defense Fund to target public education, uh, to attack it as separate but equal, and the fact that it would be unconstitutional. And that was this huge debate among black leadership as to whether or not public education should be the target in terms of seeking to integrate it, because there were leaders, particularly Julian Bond's father, who felt like you would be putting black children, particularly in a very hostile environment. And they thought in removing them from the shelter and love and support of the segregated system. But what Marshall decided and what the legal defense and the leaders of the NAACP decided that the best way to begin to erode racism and hatred and bigotry was to allow, in fact, force children of all races and colors, particularly black and white, to be able to learn to sit to grow and to educate themselves in a common environment. They believe that probably in one generation that racial bigotry and hatred, as we know it, might be eradicated. Well, it's taken more than one generation. But this is exactly the strategy that Thurgood Marshall put in place, and it's ongoing today. Because if you look at what students were saying in 61, uh, now you have to fast forward to 2022, um, maybe attitudes haven't changed, but they've changed a significant amount. And that was the strategy from day one. Write off the adults and focus on the children.
1: Um, Sam, uh, obviously, this is all a reference to the bill that would outlaw, which Governor Kemp is backing strenuously, to outlaw the teaching of critical race theory in uh, classrooms in the state of Georgia. Uh, your thoughts about this?
4: So, so first of all, um, I'm still not really sure what CRT is. Um, Secondly, um, no child should be demeaned, punished, or ridiculed based on the color of their skin, their ethnic background, etc. But we live in a time where hate crimes against, number one, Jews, Number two, Blacks. Number three, Asian-Americans is, at least from a recorded perspective, at all-time highs. And as Michael just stated, you don't solve the problem by false walls. You solve the the problem by integration by having folks talk to each other, learn more about each other and constructively become part of what is the American dream. So I I think that um, Mike was 100% correct that, uh, first of all, God bless those folks for deciding to go after the public school system because it was so needed. But number two, we have so much further to go. Yeah.
1: Uh, Jim and then Karen
2: yeah, uh, a, a couple points uh, bill just on that uh, on that article on, on the on the look at uh, University of Georgia in in, in 1961 uh, it, the, one of the the, the 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 most terrific points was the professor who demanded that that his class talk about uh, Integration he was a calculus professor it yeah. wasn't his field. It was, and, and 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 that was a sign. I mean, I mean, because the sub- subject was so verboten in 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 the social sciences, uh, and, and I, I think what it really shows is that if you are if you are trying to to uh, to uh, neutralize uh, historical discussion, you're you're creating a vacuum, and a vacuum is always filled. Uh, and, and not by, by necessarily pleasant stuff. Uh, and and, and to, Mike, uh, to, to Mike's point is, look, I was at the University of Georgia in 1974. Uh, I had a, a – my polyscience 101 was taught by uh, Albert Say, who was the uh, – I, I, either the dean or the dean emeritus of that department. And he, he was – I learned there that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery, that it was all about tariffs. This was 1974 – karen Karen.
0: well i would just say that the one thing that struck me from the article and the fact that jim mentioned right that it's a calculus professor who asked these students to do this Mm. in the essays the students lacked empathy for understanding the other side and today i think it is incumbent upon teachers and all levels to talk about what it is to perhaps look at someone that you do not understand or do not know, but try to find out more about them, that it's okay to have difficult conversations because we may be wrong in what we say, but we can always write it by learning from someone that is different from us. And I think I stress that more in my college class than anything, I may say something that's wrong and it's probably because I haven't walked in those shoes and I don't know, but please help me so I know. Teach me so I can be better.
1: I thought one of the most compelling uh, uh, p- points of this essay was this. As one student wrote 30 years after finishing his segregated education in Georgia, from elementary school through high school, there was not a single instance, not one, in which any of the teachers initiated, even allowed, a discussion about racism uh, because in those days teachers were afraid so um just to put in context what we're seeing with these uh, uh bills on critical race theory being banned in schools today um i thought that essay was worth a little of a, ta- a little of our time today we are completely out of time thank you all so much for uh taking on uh, some pretty big topics on the show today karen owen always a pleasure to have you here sam olin michael thurman Uh, two of our favorite pairings of a Republican and a Democrat on this show. It's a terrific thing to have you here. And Jim Galloway, of course, thank you for being with us. We're back with another edition of Political Rewind again tomorrow. Um, Oh, one quick note. If you haven't subscribed to the Political Rewind newsletter yet, I hope you will. It's something I write and put out every Wednesday. It'll come to your inbox. Just go to gpb.org newsletters, and you'll find it there. And I'd love to see you as a subscriber. We're out of time. Uh, back again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, and get that booster shot. Bye-bye, everybody.